From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zozan. Palestinians commemorate Land Day on an annual basis, dating back to March 30, 1976, when six unarmed Palestinians were killed by Israeli forces during protests against the Israeli government's expropriation of large tracts of Palestinian land for Jewish settlers. This week, we bring back a 2014 conversation with Samira Smear, an associate professor of rhetoric at the University of California, Berkeley, about the return of some of the Palestinian refugees to their village Kafr Biram, located in northern Palestine in the Galilee, whose residents were expelled in 1948. But first, we discuss the latest troubling developments in Tunisia. Today, Tunisian President Gais Saeed dissolved the parliament after parliament members challenged the autocratic powers he has exercised since his self-coup last July. On Wednesday, lawmakers held an online meeting defying Mr. Saeed's warning that the session was illegal and a majority voted against his power grab, which they said violated the country's constitution. Elected in a landslide in 2019, the president has been ruling by decree since July of last year, jailing opponents, suspending parts of the constitution, dismissing the Supreme Judicial Council, and restricting press freedom. Khalil Bendib spoke with our Tunisian correspondent Mohamed Hammami about the current political situation in Tunis. Mohamed Hammami is an independent researcher and analyst. Mohamed Dia Hamemi, welcome back to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's always good to have you with us. Thank you, Khalil. It's always a pleasure to be here. Mohamed, last July, Tunisian President Qais Saied, who was elected democratically two years previous in, uh, in 2019, suspended parliament and sacked the prime minister before further expanding his legislative and executive powers and suspending some parts of the constitution. The one important area of government he had not canceled was the country's independent judiciary. However, since you and I last talked about three months ago, President Qais proceeded to complete his takeover by dissolving this last remaining institutional check on his actions and by appointing his own temporary top Judicial Council. He says that he's reforming the council, not dissolving it. What was his rationale for doing this? Well, so far he did not explicitly explain why he decided to dissolve the Supreme Judicial Council. For people who are not familiar with the way Tunisian politics function, the Supreme Judicial Council was elected by legal professionals, judges, lawyers, uh, attorneys, bailiffs, and it even includes law professors from different degrees. So some people claim, or people in his entourage claim, that the previous Supreme Judicial Council was corrupt. It was close to what they call now the old regime, meaning people who were who belong to political parties, whether they're from the left or the right or Islamist or whatever meaning people who were in power before July 25th, 2021. Uh, but from the procedures, from the way 
the Judicial Council is formed, we know that it could have not been really captured by by Nava, as some people claim, which is the Islamist party. Judges are embedded in a political environment because they represent a part of the country's elite, and in Tunisia only 10% of the population got degrees from college. So it's totally normal to find that judges know each other or they've been together when they were in school and then to have different political ideologies in them. But Saeed made people think, or his supporters at least, and his allies made people think that the Supreme Judicial Council is too political and is corrupt and we need to get rid of it in the same way we get rid of everything else. So there have been large demonstrations in reaction to the president's latest move. Tell us what is the mood in the country eight months after uh, Saeed's undeclared coup and whether more and more people are losing faith with the president's project. So I think there is some sort of fatigue, general fatigue on both sides, people who are supportive of Saeed and people who are opposed to Saeed. So in terms of mobilization contestation, the size of protests who are organized by Nahda's party and its allies or by Bahda Said and his allies, the size is shrinking. So the last protest, I think the size of the anti Said protest was around 1,800 people, which is pretty small, I would say. Although usually in Tunisia, we don't really have really big protests in the way you would see them in other countries. So that's at the level of social contestation, mobilization, or political contestation. But at the same time, people feel also tired psychologically. And the tensions are rising because the political situation is getting bad and the economic situation is getting worse. And we don't really know where things are heading. The president has full authority over the country. He, as you explained, he took control of the three branches of the government already, but is not really making any progress when it comes to fixing the economy or reforming the political institutions or responding to people's expectations. Some people think that he is really obsessed with his political project, and that's why he is uh, not focusing on the economy. But people are, I think, less and less willing to wait. And we've been hearing key political actors, whether from uh, leading political parties or from the strong labor union, UGTT, complaining about the general atmosphere in which the country is right now and referring to how psychologically it become uh, really painful to wait for the president to publish a video every once in a while and inform us that he is trying to change the constitution or do things that don't have anything to do with the general economic situation or with people's expectations. So he has promised to reform the Constitution and put those reforms to a vote. What are some of the changes he wants to affect and how 
will these improve the lot of the average Tunisian, according to him? Well, regarding the constitution, we heard from his supporters. He didn't really tell us what he was planning to do, but we heard from his supporters that he would like to implement the form of democracy that is based on election of local councils and regional councils from which members of the national legislative would be randomly selected. And he think that forming a national legislative without going through a party-based direct national elections is the solution. So his the two components of his political party, of his political projects are a democracy without a political party and a democracy without direct legislative elections. And added to that, a system where the president has the monopoly of executive powers and where the prime minister does not have as much powers as the previous prime minister who were in office during the last decade. So overall, I would say these are the main components of his project. So a referendum on the constitutional reforms, which uh, Saeed hopes will bolster his authority, is scheduled for July, exactly a year after his power grab, and a parliamentary election scheduled for December. In other countries, this has been like a classic delaying tactic uh, used by authoritarian regimes throughout the world. Behind these plans, these promises, what do you think his overall strategy really might be? So as you said, this is a classic. His strategy is very similar to Fujimori in Peru in, in the early 90s. Do a self-coup, take control of the judicial and the, the legislative branch of the government, and then go step by step to a national consultation to legitimize his next move, which is a constitutional reform. But he still has to write this new constitution. And so far, we didn't really see anything done. And then uh, referendum, and finally, it ends up with a subservient parliament, weak, fragmented, that will be under a control of an executive branch of the government, not independent from it, under the control of the president. It's a scenario that we previously saw in other countries. However, in the case of Said, I do not think that he has any actual alternative plan aside from changing the constitution. He was a teacher in the university, teacher of uh, constitutional law. He spent his entire life talking about how we need to change constitutions and promoting some unconventional ideas. So, so far, most people in Tunisia really think that, that that's his main plan. We, we know that on the economic side, he's been changing his discourse. Before the election, he was kind of opposed to neoliberal policies of the World Bank and the IMF implemented during the structural adjustment programs in the 1960s, opposed to highly problematic free trade agreement with the European Union. But recently we saw him switching progressively and preparing the political environment to go and, and sign a new deal with the IMF and deepen the economic ties with the EU. So he's just taking what is on the table, what is offered by the usual international players. He's not really trying to come up with something new. Although he 
recently issued a decree that allows the creation of what he calls the popular companies, which is companies that will be created through citizen initiatives where every inhabitant of a small locality would have the right to get one share. But people are highly skeptical of the impact of this kind of bottom-up state-sponsored entrepreneurship law. We don't really think that it will solve and will respond to the needs of the Tunisian economy in terms of job creation or or reserve of foreign currency or reform of the state-owned companies that are going through really difficult situation. So I don't really think he has a plan aside from just attacking his opponents and trying to make constitutional reforms. So he seems to have strong instincts for decentralization, that somehow that will solve a lot of problems. I wouldn't call that decentralization because he wants to even centralize more the the executive branch of the government. In decentralization, you would allow localities to have more power. Uh, you increase the role of the local government. Even here in the U.S., I don't know, like the police would be under authority of local government. He's not planning to do anything like that. All what he wants to do is to create some sort of indirect election, and he thinks that it would increase the the demographic representativity of the legislative branch of the government. But aside from the transformation in the legislative branch of the government, he really wants to concentrate power at the level of the presidency, not even at the level of the prime minister. So that's why I wouldn't call it decentralization. Tunisia, as you just mentioned, and the International Monetary Fund are in talks with an eye on, on a potential multi-billion dollar rescue deal for Tunisia's economy, which is plagued by recession after the COVID crisis, public debt, inflation, and unemployment. The IMF is demanding, quote, deep reforms <laughs> and public spending cuts. This in a country where so many are already struggling to make ends meet. Supposing the medicine isn't worse than the disease, what are some of the painful reforms that the IMF are trying to impose that supposedly would help uh, the people of Tunisia? Well, we don't actually know. Usually in a more open democratic setting, this kind of information would be leaked to the media. I remember back in 2014, I was working at Nawet and we published the actual letter that was drafted by the government before sending it to the IMF, detailing the pro- what they were planning to do. Or sometimes ministers or get invited to the General Assembly and questioned by MPs. But in this kind of setting, the information is tightly controlled. The few information that we have come from the union, the UGTT, whose leader had a recent meeting with the IMF. We know from the rhetoric and of UGTT's leaders that it seems to be that it's the usual reform, meaning privatization of state-owned companies, cuts in salaries of the public sector, shrinking of the public sector, the usual Washington consensus, neoliberal reforms. Well, hiring freezes happened already. We've been hiring, freezing hiring for years. I don't think 
hiring freezes a new policy because we've been implementing this for for years and it's not working. In fact, it's preventing the government from hiring young, new, fresh people with new ideas who may help the government to modernize public services. Well, actually, no. Since we started working with the IMF, the government had to stop hiring. I mean, they hire really exceptionally under social pressure. Right now, they are trying to get into things that are more uh, harmful and, and really deeper would be about probably privatization of big state-owned companies. And of course, I mean, I can't speculate, but based on previous experiences of the IMF in other countries or in Tunisia, these would be only speculation simply because the government did not publish any official and reliable information about what they're planning to do. In fact, what Said have been doing is we've been trying to present the prime minister appointed Najla Boudin as the one who is in charge of the economic reform. So he's putting her at the front and every once in a while in the presidency published a statement where they will be a little bit critical of the IMF uh, policies and emphasizing that it's the prime minister who is in charge of the negotiation. So Saeed does not meet directly with IMF representative, it's instead the prime minister. And it's a kind of way by creating this kind of buffer between him and the IMF. He thinks that politically, when the reforms will be implemented, he would not be held responsible for the choices that are currently made. And UGTT is aware of that. The Labour Union is aware of that. The Secretary General, Nordin Tabubi, recently addressed the president in public and he told him, you are the one who is elected. You are the one who should talk with us, not the prime minister who was appointed recently and does not have a margin of maneuver and cannot really discuss with us in the same way you would do. So we're talking about the usual austerity policies that are pushed by the IMF and are so unpopular with people for good reason. Yes, exactly. Obviously, yes. But but usually I would say Tunisia started its first IMF program in uh, 2013. And since then, we've been implementing austerity policies that made the situation even worse. So now we are probably about to implement the most harmful policies ever or the most socially unacceptable ever since 2013. So the UGTT, the country's powerful labor union, which claims a membership of more than a million in a country of 12 million people, it says that it must be included in talks over political and economic reforms called for by the IMF. Supposing that UGTT is included in this debate, absent a clear economic policy by the government, how would it propose to solve this dilemma that Tunisia is facing? That on the one hand, they need support from the IMF. On the other hand, they don't want to sacrifice the minimal public spending that Tunisia is enjoying or relying on. IMF is already somehow included in the negotiation. Before the coup happened before Qais Saeed took control of the uh, legislative and judiciary branch of the government. There were early negotiations with the IMF. And since then, since I think early 2021, the IMF put the approval of UGT as a condition to the loan because he, they know that even if the government accepts the reform, they can only be implemented if. UGTT doesn't resist. 
But what happened now is that Ujidete is not willing to be held responsible for Saeed's decisions. So what they are calling for is solving quickly the political situation by dissolving the parliament officially instead of suspending it, organizing early legislative elections to somehow share the political burden. And then we would implement the economic reforms. Usually is, in fact, today, I think, they, as we are recording, we are on the 29th March, the labor union or the branch of the labor union that covered the entire public sector called for a nationwide general strike in reaction to the IMF conditions, to express their rejection of the IMF conditions. And Nordin Taboubi, the secretary general, said that they are even willing and considering organizing what he called a political strike in order to pressure the government to pressure sides specifically to make concessions and to re-establish democratic institutions, more specifically the parliament. He didn't talk about the judiciary, but once you bring back a parliament, maybe we'll be able to, to bring back the judiciary. So now Ujite is progressively pushing for political change in order to be able to share the burden of the economic reforms with other political actors. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has exacerbated the plight of countries that depend on energy and grain imports. What is Tunisia's position vis-à-vis the conflict in Ukraine, and how badly does it stand to suffer from disruptions in the international grain and energy market? So Tunisia is a big importer of grain, mainly wheat, from Ukraine and Russia, both. Unfortunately, the government, as many other governments, didn't see the war coming and didn't manage to find alternative sources of supply before end of February 2022. So it had a direct impact on the local market that was already in distress. In fact, we saw reports on problems of supply of bread all over the country and in rationing of bread since late January, early February, which is a month before the war started. Things now are getting worse, but the government is, I think, getting ready for Ramadan, which is about to start soon. So it's a period of time during which the demand on food usually increases. We don't know if they are actually ready. Officially, the Ministry of Commerce said they are ready and there are no problems. Uh, In fact, they've been denying even the problems of supply that I mentioned earlier, both in the local and international media. The scarcity of bread has been observed by so many journalists and and been critiqued by many political actors in the union. So it's not really clear, again, if the government is actually ready. Ramadan would be the test, and we'll see. You know, Tunisia is right next door to my area of Algeria, where my family comes from. And my family on both sides are wheat growers. We have this monoculture in Setif, 
that has been there since the time of the Romans and we used to be Rome's breadbasket. I'm wondering what proportion of Tunisia's consumption of wheat comes from Tunisia. I'm sure there must be some wheat grown next door to where I come from. Yes, exactly. So there is the same narrative about the history of wheat production in Tunisia, even when it comes to its relationship with Rome. And... But I think, I don't recall the numbers right now. What I know is that more than 60% of the imported wheat comes from Russia and Ukraine. I remember, I think, the numbers in terms of imports. I think we're around 200 million, I think, of imports of wheat, but only 200 million of exports to Libya. Libya is the main market of export for Tunisian wheat. We're not self-sufficient, for sure. I think this is all what I can say. I don't really remember the numbers. Yeah, it's just that the whole North Africa, from Egypt all the way to Morocco, were huge wheat consumers that's our staple we we don't depend so much on rice or anything else or corn and any of those other staples and like other continents no matter how much we produce we we just don't produce enough because we eat bread we eat couscous we eat spaghetti we eat everything that has wheat in it we're huge consumers and this is a big crisis for north africa all of a sudden the imports being cut off or slowed to a trickle it's a huge issue. Exactly. But also the other reason why we, we eat a lot of wheat-based food is because historically provides the necessary amount of calories that people need to work in manual labor. Even though it's unhealthy, it led to problem of obesity in the last two decades or three decades. It is a part of our tradition, yes, to eat couscous. But the reason why we eat a lot of bread is because it's subsidized. Uh, and it's cheap. People who, who have a higher income eat much less bread, uh, can afford buying vegetables, while low-income people are actually having a hard time buying vegetables. A anything else? Exactly, exactly. Anything else, exactly. I remember seeing in Algiers, seeing laborers, and that's what they ate. They had these big chunks of bread with maybe a little bit of cheese or sardine or something. But it was mostly... A bread diet and it didn't look bad to me because I'm also addicted to wheat I don't know if you've heard the this old joke that you know where do you draw the line between the Middle East and North Africa where does North Africa end and Middle East begin and they say where couscous ends <laughs> and rice begins that's so it's a it would be somewhere through uh, Libya or Egypt yeah, I, I don't think they do. They don't have... Do they have couscous in Egypt? No, they don't have couscous. No, they don't know what couscous is, no. They don't, yeah. So that's where the Middle East start, begins, I, I guess. <laughs> exactly. How about the prices of fossil fuels? How is that affecting or will it affect Tunisia? This big spike. So the big spikes are absorbed by the subsidies budget. The government is increasing the price of fuel progressively. Actually, they started increasing by the beginning of the year before the war started. The main problem is that the national budget of 2022 is based on the hypothesis that the price of fuel will be around $75 a barrel. Way far from that. 
So the cost right now is covered by reallocation of other expenses for the fuel subsidies. I don't think the increases that we'll see throughout the year, this progressive or previously planned increases, will absorb the prices, the, the sudden rise of prices. Uh, we're seeing the international market, but it also for sure put a burden on the available amount of foreign currency we have. Since Tunisia have been downgraded twice since July 25th, and I think three times since last summer, the access to international market is becoming almost impossible. And since the IMF and EU macroeconomic aid, or that's how they call it, is conditioned by political decisions that society is not willing to do, the multilateral loans are not an option anymore. And the other sources usually in this kind of situation, Gulf countries, bilateral loans, but none of the Gulf countries is willing to help Saeed because he's not really an ally, he's not reliable, they don't even know if it would be power for given the other year, so they're not willing to invest in improving the ties with him. So Tunisia has right now a huge problem of access to foreign reserves and the rise of prices of oil is uh, eroding the few amount of foreign currency reserve we have. I would like to end with this interesting story out of your country, Tunisia, and sort of a positive, hopeful one (laughs) for a change. An interesting story that came out of Tunisia past few months is that of a successful grassroots effort to redirect more than 200 containers of household refuse that were imported by a private company from Italy and that for some complicity, some local complicity in in Tunisia was admitted, but flagged by local activists. And eventually that trash, that garbage that was shipped illegally to Tunisia was finally sent back to Italy. Tell us a little bit about this story. and, And is this sort of thing commonplace, you know, the North northern countries sending their trash to the south as far as Tunisia is concerned. Yeah, it's not really common. I think the reason why it became a huge polemic in the country and even in Italian media because this is, seems to be unprecedented. Yes, local activists and environmental organizations played a huge role, but I wouldn't say it's only a grassroots reaction because we know that members of the parliament, suspended parliament, played a very important role in defending the case of Tunisia in Italy. In fact, I'm talking here specifically about members of the Tunisian parliament representing the Tunisian diaspora in Italy, who got to talk to lawyers in Italy because a big part of the case is a legal case that local environmental organization in Tunisia could not handle without support from local actors. So I think it's a huge victory, yes. It creates a very important legal precedent. So hopefully we won't see Italy sending us their toxic waste anymore. I hope so. And uh, it's great that we have such a reactive and aware network of local organizations who know how 
to navigate both the systems in Tunisia and Italy to get allies and to get support and to push against these private actors. I hope we've managed to preserve this tradition that was built mostly during the last 10 years. Mohamed Hammami is an independent researcher and analyst. He spoke with Khalil Bendi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Refugees no longer, we have returned, a group of Palestinian youths declared in 2012 as they decided to practice their right of return by going back to their village of Ikrit in northern Palestine. A year later, some of the refugees from the neighboring village Kafr Birahim declared their return to their village as well, announcing that they were no longer refugees and to Israel's consternation, they moved to live in the church and in the two-room school structure of the village, holding gatherings, parties, events, and concerts. Samurai Smeir, associate professor at the Department of Rhetoric at UC Berkeley, has written about Kafr Birahim's history and the return movement in her article titled A Guide for the Perplexed on the Return of the Refugees, published and the Middle East Research and Information Project Journal. She started by taking us through the village, which was declared by the Israelis a national park in the aftermath of the 1948 Nakba. This is the Upper Galilee. Uh, the road leading to the village is a road that leads to many other Palestinian villages. It's uh, very close to Lebanon. From the main street, you turn right, and you enter into newly renovated road. The reason it's renovated, of course, is because of the park, the fact that we have a park. 
When you pass by a gate, there is a guard there because it's a national park. There is then a guard stationed in uh, a kiosk uh, next to the sign that declares the village a national park. It's very uh, well maintained. It's been even developed uh, in the last two decades by the parks authorities, the Israeli park authorities, because they designated it as a park. You park your car, and if you're looking carefully beyond the sign or what the sign, the information that the sign offers you, you can begin to sense that this is not really a national park, that this was once a village. And in a way, it continues to be a village inhabited even, not by the living, but by the dead. You can see the cemetery. Uh, The parking lot overlooks the cemetery, and on a good day, you can see the cemetery. You can see people walking around, and not necessarily tourists, but perhaps inhabitants of Biram who are visiting the cemetery, visiting their loved ones. If you go up and start walking up the stairs, you'd pass by uh, a temple, and um, you continue up and you reach the village square. Mm. To your left, you'll see a church. You may find a funeral there or a wedding because the inhabitants of the village continue to use the church. Wow. And they've claimed its use for many decades now, since the 70s. So you'll find a funeral, a wedding, or any other occasion. If you're in the summertime, you may find a camp for kids. Every summer, a Lauda movement, the return movement, holds a summer camp there for kids. And so you may find a summer camp or you may find old men and women just coming to take a walk and eat the fruits of Beraim, pick the fruits of Beraim. You'll see, you will immediately notice the old houses, the ruins of the old houses. You'll notice the church. You'll notice next to it, opposite of it, is an old school that used to be the elementary school of the church. If you look carefully, you'll see that this is not really a national park. Mm. You'll see that the national park is the construction on the place that was meant to erase the history, but not only the history, but the continuous presence of Beraim on that land. Can you give us a brief history of Kefer Beraim? And how was this village depopulated? Kufar Biram is a village in the in northern Palestine, in the Upper Galilee. It's near the borders with Lebanon. In 1948, during the war, the war that resulted in the colonization and occupation of Palestine, many villages, of course, were occupied and depopulated. Biram, in particular, was occupied towards the end of 1948 in operation, what was called Operation Hiram at the time. So Biram was occupied on October 31st of 1948. That operation, Operation Hiram, resulted in the occupation of the Upper Galilee, the entirety of the Upper Galilee, which was originally, or according to the partition plan of 1947, the Upper Galilee was supposed to be part of the Palestinian, the Arab-Palestinian state. It was occupied by Zionist forces in 1948 and depopulated almost immediately. What happened with Biram is a story that happened also with many other villages. It's not in any way particularly unique, but it is an interesting story because of the ways in which it would later be carved in Palestinian public memory, and we can talk about that later. But Biram was occupied. The forces, the Zionist forces, went into the into the village imposed uh, a curfew on the village and later asked the inhabitants to leave the village. 
they left the village and scattered in the woods surrounding mm. it because they did not want to leave their homes. Seven children at the time died because this was the beginning of November and it was a very cold month. At the time, the so-called Minister of Minorities, you have to remember that this is post-so-called independence of Israel. So we already have during that time a government with ministers. The Minister of Minorities visited a nearby village called Jish. And some of Biramites, some of the inhabitants of Biram, went to see him in order to convey their fate to him and what had happened and to really demand that they'd be allowed to return to their village. They were told or promised that they can return. Soon. No, so yes, exactly. So the Minister of Interior came to the village, he called upon them, they emerged from the woods, and he, the, he told them that they'd be transferred to Jesh, mm. that nearby village, for about two weeks and they'd be able to return after the conclusion of the military operations in the area, especially that this was along the border with Lebanon. Of course, they went to Jish. Jish had suffered another battle, and some people were killed uh, in Jish, and uh, it resulted in uh, the, the killing of some people, of course, of some Palestinians and Arab soldiers in Jish resulted in another, of course, depopulation of the village. So we had many empty houses in Jish. Uh, the inhabitants of Biram settled in these houses, and those who did not find any house to settle in were ordered to move to Ramesh on the Lebanese mm. side of the border. Because there were not enough space for everybody from Biram yes. to be housed in Jish right. as well. Yes, Jish was not completely depopulated, mm. so you still had uh, the majority of the residents in Jish, but we had some empty houses mm. that the residents of Biram lived in. The rest moved to Ramesh and became refugees who were unable then to return to Palestine altogether. Um, so they were they ended up on the Lebanese side of the border, um, those who could not find a place to live in in Jesh. And despite the promise, of course, it's been going on um, their deep depopulation and uprooting that happened in 1948 has been going on until today. And the village originally registered, as you say in your piece, about 1,050 residents. And in September 1953, the Israeli army bombarded the village from the air and the ground, destroying most of it, but it saved the church and the cemetery. Can you talk about what happened after 1948? Why did they bomb this village? Was it that they wanted to erase any history of who lived there? Many villages were bombarded. Biram was no exception mm. uh, during that time. But there was this idea that you can, of course, eradicate all traces of the presence of Palestinians. You mentioned in your introduction that today Biram is a national park. The emergence of the possibility of the idea of the national park rests on the destruction of the village. You cannot declare a place a national park unless you've really destroyed the village. And the sign that declares the village a national park barely mentions that there was once a Palestinian mm -hmm. village in that place, elaborating extensively on other histories of the village. But the few hundred years in which we had Palestinian residents in that village are uh, briefly mentioned in two lines. The other reason for the bombardment of this particular village is that the inhabitants in 1951 appealed to the high court demanding their return arguing that they were promised to return. Mm. And we have a whole legal battle here, which is another part of the story. Um, the court ended up denying them the right to return 
But that denial, that legal denial, had to be secured by military means. And mm-hmm. the military means were the bombardment of the village. You said that over the years, people have held ceremonies there. They have visiting their loved ones in the, in the cemetery. What was behind the decision to really create a movement behind um, going back to that village and reclaiming what was theirs? So the story really, the return movement does not have one beginning. We have different beginnings and clearly the Biram story is also not the end of the of this movement. In Biram, you had another movement called Return Movement, Al-Auda, Al-Auda. and they were a group of youth at the time. I mean, I wouldn't say youth. In fact, they were, I think, in their 20s and 30s at the time when, when they started the movement in the late 80s or 90s, I believe. And they have been holding the summer camps, as I said earlier. So the idea that you can return has been, or that there are ways of returning, has been with Biramites for a while. In addition, Iqrat, as we mentioned, the refugees of Iqrat uh, returned a year le- earlier and they declared, we are no longer refugees. And their Facebook page actually said, regardless of what Israel says, regardless of what the law says, we don't care. And they said, Nakba or, or not Nakba. If the Nakba happened or has not happened, we are no longer refugees. We refuse to be refugees. In fact, it's not that we refuse to be refugees. We are no longer refugees. Mm. That is, we have returned. And they declared their return. They were evacuated and the legal challenges were not successful. But that inspired Biram's refugees Mm. and not only the youth, the youth, the older men and women and the really old men and women of the village returned there. Now, but we have to remember that in the last decade or so, the question of the right of return has become very central to Palestinian politics. And because the political movement, that is the Palestinian Authority and the PLO, has not been doing any progress on this issue and seems to be, gives signals that this is not the most central issue to the Palestinians, even though it is because most Palestinians are refugees. Many grassroots groups took this issue upon themselves, and we have witnessed various acts of return. So if you recall two years ago, I believe two or three years ago, there was the return of refugees from all over the Arab world coming to the borders of Palestine. So that was another movement. So what we've been witnessing is various manifestations of a new practice, a practice that says we're not going to wait for the right to be Mm. fulfilled, Mm. but we're going to turn the right into a practice of return and see what kind of politics that can generate. In your piece, you write, something magnificent has escaped occupation and colonization, something that may only be understood once it is recognized that the time of the occupied and the time of the occupier do not share the same calendar. The unshareable calendar signifies the incompleteness of the colonization of Palestine. Can you elaborate on that? You know, there is something magnificent here. We have been witnessing all these return initiatives, campaigns, movements. In Birham's case, they've also attempted to return in 19, in the early 70s, once the security closed zones were abolished. Uh, Israel, the Israeli government abolished the institution of security, uh, closed security zones, and then they attempted to return then, thinking that with that, um, 
with that new regime of the cancellation of the security zones, they could be able to live in their village. They returned. They lost it there for a long period of time. They went on a hunger strike first, or what they called a fast. But they were evacuated ultimately. So that there is that what I call a return drive. There is this sense that you want to go back. And I'm really intrigued by the fact that Palestine was occupied in 1948, and that drive to return to one's village, to one's home, mm. to one's community, to a past that does not seem to be a past but continues to be a, a haunting present, mm. is still there. And I think we can, to my mind, we can perhaps begin to understand that if we understand that the movement of time of the Israeli colonial state does not map out on the movement of time of Palestinians. Mm. That is... For the Palestinians, it's not just 65 years that have passed by and therefore they have forgotten. Hmm. Those 65 years have not passed by and therefore they are now far removed from 1948 or from the life that they once had. But in a way, they continue to live in the past and the past is their present. Um, and of course, all these other practices of the state that have continued since 1948 only intensify the connection, right? Intensify the connection to the village. That is to say, depopulation did not happen only in 1948. It happened also in 1972, and it's happening also in 2014. So by the, fa the fact that the state continues to use the same practices of ethnic cleansing and depopulation, that fact only serves to show the Nakba as an ongoing event and not one that belongs to the past. And therefore, you continue to live its consequences and to act against mm. it. Something else that has been very interesting for me is that even for this small village in northern Galilee, northern Palestine, it has become a cause that brought people, Palestinians, from the West Bank, from Jerusalem, from other parts of today's Israel, to that place. So it has become a unifying factor. Actually, a, a young man in Igrit said that this is something that Israel is afraid of, that these movements have become, in a way, unifying movements for Palestinians to come together, and that's what threatens the colonial state of Israel. Definitely. I mean, it's uh, it's absolutely amazing that they have been able to galvanize um, so much support and solidarity from from similarly depopulated villages that took the cause of Biraim, take the cause of Biraim and Iqrit to signify and to symbolize their cause as well in other villages or the cause of Palestinian refugees more generally or the cause of Palestinians mm. in general as as a people that has been displaced from its homeland. So visitors and returnees come from all over Palestine. Of course, those in the West Bank and Gaza cannot come to the Galilee. They, 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 Israel won't mm -hmm. allow them to enter. But we, they do have messages of uh, solidarity, of participation. They held a beautiful festival, music festival, two months ago. They just had a concert. They celebrated Christmas Eve in the village. Mm. Uh, they held a huge dinner party uh, for all the people who, who are all the returnees and their guests. In a way, and I think I do mention that in the article, they're hosting guests again. That is, they've declared themselves as the owners of the hmm. place. Something that uh, you just mentioned was that in 1972, Israel removed uh, the closed military zone designation. What does that exactly mean? 
Well, a closed military zone is really declared based on the British colonial uh, period regulations. Mm. So uh, emergency regulations. So it's an exceptional legality that has been used in order to prevent the return of many Palestinians into particular areas. So you have many areas in um, Palestine that are closed military zones and the return of people is prevented to these zones. Mm. They've removed them in 1972. And this is when Biramites thought that by this removal, they'd be able to return to their village. Little did they know they were a bit naive, they were a bit too hopeful, and the government ended up coming up with another legal regime to prevent the return. So the Baramites uh, submitted an appeal to the high court in Israel. This time around, um, they really have bypassed the legal channels, and they just have tried to take over what's theirs. So how many times did they go through the court system, legal system, before deciding to bypass it and just taking over the village. Okay, so story is slightly complicated because some of the cases were by Biram and some of the cases by, were by Ikrit. Mm-hmm. But since Ikrit and Biram are pair villages, mm-hmm. so some of the cases that Ikrit initiated and Biram did not initiate ended up affecting Biram, even though Biram did not initiate it. But the, the first case was in 1951, and they petitioned the High Court uh, on uh, end of August 1951 at the time against the Prime Minister and the Minister of Agriculture and so on and so forth. And at the time, they said we were promised to return, where we were not allowed to return. And the lawyer also argued that the designation of the village as a security zone, that is the designation that prevented the right of the, the, the legal designation that prevented the return of the refugees to their village. The lawyer argued that that designation happened 20 months after the expulsion. So what Israel did was it's expelled, Mm -hmm. it depopulated, Mm -hmm. but only after 20 months did it declare the area's closed security zone. So the lawyer used it as an excuse to argue that if this is the case, then the expulsion was illegal because at the time the village was not declared a security zone. And also, if I'm not mistaken, they argue the fact that these people were not expelled, but they were temporarily, quote unquote, displaced and they were promised that they will return to their village. Um, That's the more political argument, but the legal argument at the time, what the court argued is that the inhabitants were not really displaced by force, that they agreed to leave the village. And because they agreed to leave the village, then they were not expelled. And since the area was declared a security zone and exit orders were given, you know, they called the expulsion orders exit orders. Mm. So since exit orders were given also, of course, under um, after the fact, many months after the fact, the removal or the the exit, as the court put it, of these villagers was legal. And this was no expulsion. So they they argued and this force argument is very important. The Israeli High Court legitimized many of the practices of 1948 by saying the villagers left voluntarily. They were not forced to leave. And if you recall in the story in the story I started with, the Minister of Minorities told them, leave for two mo- weeks and you'll be able to return. You'd be able to return. So, of course, this is the minister of minorities. He has he can activate the threat of the military any at any time. They left because they were deceived. They left because mm-hmm. they were told they would return. But also, even if they were not deceived, if the military came and said, you have to leave, faced with the monopoly of violence that the army has, mm-hmm. they're going to leave 
perhaps without a battle because they'd be afraid for their lives. Is that forced expulsion or is that voluntary mm. exit? The court thought of these practices, categorized these practices as voluntary exits and then in turn legalized expulsion, made it legal. We had many cases over the years after 1951. For the most part, though, Biramites did not hesitate to use the legal system, especially in the last few decades, mainly because they thought that if the court is going to dismiss their case, then that's going to set a precedent and then that's going to prevent their return altogether. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they left it for politics, uh, the political field is more open with possibilities and with some changes in the future, they might maintain a possibility of return. Samira Ismail is associate professor at the Department of Rhetoric at UC Berkeley. Her article is titled, A Guide for the Perplexed on the Return of the Refugees, and it was published in the Middle East Research and Information Project Journal. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.